0: Hi and welcome to the Dine Desk podcast. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and this week we're doing something a little bit different which made me think it might be time to do a little reintroduction of myself for those of you who are newish to the podcast. So podcast has picked up a lot of new listeners lately which is super fun but the interesting thing is that I now have people who listen to me Solely for the podcast. We have people who listen not only in Sacramento, where I'm based, but all over the country and even all over the world. We have people who listen to this show, which is super cool. Um, But this is actually not my main job. My main job is that I'm a morning television news anchor at KCRA-TV, which is the NBC affiliate in Sacramento, California. And then I also help lead the Hearst Olympic team, Hearst Television. The podcast is actually something I jokingly call my after-school project. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very small part of what I do, but I really love it. It's something super fun for me. But the audiences for, for my different jobs can be very different. So in my TV job, I often am asked to MC or moderate events, community-type events. And one of the best ones that I have done in the last few years is helping moderate the Sacramento Speakers series. It is the best because it is kind of scary. (laughs) It's scary for two reasons. Number one, you always get to interview really big names and very smart people. So I've gotten to chat with everybody from Malala to the author, Colson Whitehead, to this month I get to talk to the biographer, Walter Isaacson. The second reason it's scary is that my part of it, which is a 30-minute Q&A, does with the the speaker doesn't happen until nine in the evening. And by that time, I have been awake for 19 hours. And I am not as fresh or as filtered as I normally am during the morning news. So it's a little scary on both counts. But I genuinely really enjoy the opportunity to connect with people who in my normal life, I would never get a chance to talk to. So as I mentioned, this month, the guest that I got to hang out with for a while was Walter Isaacson, the genius biographer, as my brother-in-law Chris calls him. Walter Isaacson is the best-selling author of biographies of everyone from Jennifer Doudna, the biochemist, to Leonardo da Vinci, to Steve Jobs, to Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein. He's been a professor of history at Tulane, CEO of the Aspen Institute. He was the chair of CNN. He did not like that job. <laughs> and Also, the editor of Time Magazine. That's the job he really enjoyed. So his latest biography in probably his most controversial because of the subject matter, is Elon Musk. So this is the book that came out this fall. People tend to love or hate Elon Musk. Walter spent two years with him. He said I could call him that. Don't think I'm being disrespectful. (laughs) Walter spent two years with him. And personally, I really loved the book, and I found it very, very interesting. Now, it was not the first biography I've read of Musk. The first one was actually years ago when my son was in fourth grade, and he wrote a biography because he was totally worshipped. Tech innovators of all sorts. He wrote the first biography of Elon Musk that I had read. Walters is much more researched. And I think that, you know, for kids like my son and for young people in general, um, there is this interesting phenomenon with tech innovators that the NYU professor and pivot co host Scott Galloway has called the idolatry of innovators. So the idea is that we forget the personal shortcomings or the just plain cruel behavior of some of the tech bros because they make cool stuff. And so I think that's part of what has kind of played into some of the controversy that's come out this fall about this book. There are some tech reporters who have absolutely hated it. And other people have said, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear the background of somebody who has become such a prominent name. So I had 10 minutes, a 10-minute window to talk with Walter. And my only regret about our interview It's that I only used eight minutes of it. I still had two minutes on the table and I didn't realize it because I had looked at my watch and then I didn't look at it again. I relied on my inner clock And it cut me two minutes short, but that's okay. We still were able to cover a lot of ground. So on this time to ask, the unusual deal that Walter Isaacson struck with Elon Musk before writing the book, how he found out that Musk had actually accepted his offer to do the book, it is vintage Musk, how the Twitter sale impacted his research and the book, and why we should all broaden our interests to think bigger. This is probably my favorite part of the conversation. Walter Isaacson is my guest on this week's Dying to Ask podcast. Have you ever wondered, how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Well, congratulations on the film adaptation. That was big (laughs) news here in the last week.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Deirdre. Who should play Elon Musk?
0: Oh gosh, that is a good question. Do you have ideas?
1: He was kicking around the ideas like Benedict Cumberbatch, I think. I could uh, see that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I was going to say,
0: he, I would imagine Elon Musk has ideas that yeah, he should play. Yeah, him. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: He's more interesting than my ideas.
0: That's exciting, though. I, I've listened to a lot of interviews you've done around the book, and one of the things that fascinated me was um, the access that you had to him and the deal that you had with him about right. this book. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I'd said to him early on when I was thinking of doing this book, I don't wanna do it based on 10 or 15 interviews. I wanna be able to be by your side whenever I want for two years, morning, noon, and night, every meeting, nothing off limits. And he said, okay. I went, wow. And then I said, but by the way, you have no control over the book. You don't even get to read it in advance. I'm not gonna show it to you. He went, okay. And so that surprised me after our conversation I was with a group of friends a few minutes later, and they started buzzing. I said, what happened? He said, well, Musk just tweeted out, Walter's writing my biography. <laughs> so that's where I got the tiger by the tail. That wasn't mm-hmm. the
0: first time you'd done something like that. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly, exactly. I did, you know, Steve Jobs was alive when I was mm-hmm. covering him, and then Jennifer Doudna, the book about the woman who uh, helped invent gene editing technology, which was my last book. So I like it. I sort of have a reporter's instincts like you. I like being around people. And it's what I can bring to the party. I can just sit there and listen to people and report the story to you.
0: It, it seems like, you know, most of the time when we go in and we talk to somebody, especially for that length of a time, there's a filter that usually comes on. There's no filter in this book. I mean,
1: he's an unfiltered individual 100%. and that's um, good and bad. Uh, you know, he's so unfiltered that sometimes he just says things. He shoots himself in the foot. And at the end of the book, I say, well, wouldn't it be better if he had a filter? Wouldn't it be better if we could restrain him? And then I say, well, but would a filtered musk, a restrained musk actually be shooting off these rockets and getting us to Mars? So maybe you have to take the unfiltered and immature along with the inspirational to get this whole cloth.
0: When you started with this project, I would imagine you were thinking about like rockets and Mm -hmm. electric cars. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, He bought twitter
1: right well that sort of it was a pivot (laughs) when he did that and it was bad in a way because he has a fingertip feel for engineering he really knows how to not only understand rockets and raptor engines and batteries but also assembly lines and plants and how to make them he does not have a good feel for human emotional input output he talks about being on the autism spectrum and it does mean that a social media company like twitter doesn't really fit his skill set as well, I don't think.
0: What, when you, when you were, you know, spending as much time as you were with him, were there just down moments very often where it was just the two of you hanging out? And mm-hmm. what were the silences like, or were there any?
1: That's a great question, because there was a lot of downtime. He has meeting after meeting, you know, from early in the morning till maybe 1 at 1 a.m., But he always has 10 or 15 minutes in between. People would clear out and he would just process. He would Mm -hmm. just think. But I'd be sitting there and I learned rule one is don't fill the silences. I'd sit there and not say anything. And then maybe after five or 10 minutes, he would start talking about something he wanted to say. But I had the luxury of having two years. I didn't have to push.
0: Maybe that's a weird question, but what does it look like when he sits and thinks?
1: He has a blank look on his face and there's, An intensity but also a stone-cold look and it's almost like he's batch processing that's an old computer term yeah back before we have computers now they can just do a thousand things at once and he will serially go through problems think it through in his head and just stare blankly
0: we um I think about this because I have teenagers. We live in a world that really rewards a lot of specialization. You know, Mm -hmm. kids specialize in a sport from a very early age, or they study something Mm -hmm. from a very early age. But a lot of the great inventors that you've written about weren't people who specialized. They did lots of different things, and Elon Musk is certainly one of those. And it's not something we would necessarily encourage with young people these days. But you know, we should
1: encourage it more for people to try to know something about everything that's knowable. That was the key to Leonardo da Vinci. That's why he was the epitome of the Renaissance person, because he tried to know everything from music to math, to science, to art. And Steve Jobs said that was what set Apple apart, is that they believed in the intersection of the arts and sciences. You know, we tell our kids, I remember telling my kid, you know, you gotta learn how to code. And then suddenly machines are gonna code for us. What you have to learn is creativity. That comes from standing at the intersection of many disciplines.
0: Some of them think now that they don't need to learn how to write because of ChatGPT. Exactly, and (laughs) you you know know? what,
1: if they don't know how to write, they don't know how to think.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, You spend, I know you're a very techy person, that you like tech. Mm -hmm. Did you pick up any tech habits being around him?
1: Musk, well, I picked up a bad habit. What's that? Which (laughs) is that he's addicted to (laughs) video games. So I had to learn Polytopia, you know, uh, which is one of those battle games and Elden Ring, which is one of those games where you go from level to level. And there'll be times where he would just play hours on end. (laughs) And I was never a video game addict, but I felt I had to at least learn it because he said there were a lot of lessons from Polytopia. You read the book, you see the lessons he learned from Polytopia, so I at least had to learn how to play it.
0: Did you get decent at
1: it? No, no, no. (laughs) no. In fact, I would have thought I got decent, but he and his friends and the uh, people around him They're all so good that they could crush me even if I had become half decent.
0: That's pretty funny. My phone all day, I was getting texts from friends and family and even, you know, my kids with questions for you. (laughs) Everybody wants to talk about Elon Musk. One of the ones that I was reminded of was actually from my boss. And he reminded me that it was a guy in Sacramento who actually sold him the rights to the word Tesla.
1: Well, yeah. You know, there were about four or five um, founders of Tesla. Something's a success. Everybody takes credit for it. And there was Martin Eberhardt and Mark Tarpening, who had gotten the name Tesla, but they didn't really have a company. They didn't have a lot of people working for them or any funding. There was also a guy named J.B. Straubel, who had the idea of lithium ion batteries in a roadster-like car. And then Elon, and he put it all together. But they all sued each other for a couple of years. Say who gets to be called the founder? Until finally they settled and all said all five of us do.
0: And then it was a guy Brad Seward, Seward, I think, from Sacramento who had the, he owned the naming rights. And he said on 60 Minutes that he bought the rights from him for seventy-five grand.
1: You know that was just I think the web domain. Just the name. web domain, yeah. yeah.
0: Which I which I suppose that it's, since <laughs> I bought a Tesla online, I guess yes, that was sir. valuable. <laughs> yes,
1: <sir. laughs> I know. We should, I remember when I was a journalist at Time Magazine, I understood the internet pretty early on, and I registered the names time.com, money.com, wow. sports.com, and it was like, whoa, those are probably the most valuable things we had that, that year. That was probably, that was a good legacy.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you just one more. Some people have been kind of critical of the book, maybe in ways that mm-hmm. the other books weren't critical. Did that surprise you, and did it bother you at all?
1: Oh, no. I think that people say, well, I wasn't tough enough. I didn't make judgments enough, or I wasn't harsh or I wasn't, some people say I was too harsh, but I was just a storyteller. And I think that it's important for every reader to get to make his or her own judgment. And so when people say, hey, he didn't, you know, preach and come down hard or something, I say, yeah, I'm the storyteller. I got to report. You get to process this because I trust the reader to figure things out.
0: Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Have you ever read a Walter Isaacson book? If you have not, you should. It doesn't have to be Elon Musk if that is just not your thing, but it sure is great to learn for the sake of learning while also being entertained in the process. And I think that's the the beauty of Walter Isaacson's writing is that it's super approachable. I mean, this guy is like brilliant. But he uses words that most of us can understand. So, if you haven't, maybe put your name on one for a, for a loan from the library, or maybe download the audiobook. That'd be a great way to do it as well. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to share it with a friend. You could text it to them, and then if you have a minute to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening to us right now, I sure would appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Dying Desk Podcast. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I'll catch you next time.